0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today with my sister, Debbie Shore, and two phenomenal guests for our conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world.
1: We know that refugee food as a means of communication and integrating is very popular. This is the way you learn that the people who are villainized or vilified or just made into statistics are not, in fact, that, that they are human beings.
2: You're looking across all the different communities of diaspora, right? It's all the same, right? They go to a new place, don't have anything, but you know, one of the things they, they do still have is their food, right? Their language and their food.
0: I want to welcome Johanna Mendelson Foreman. I'm so glad you're here, Johanna. You teach food and culture at American University, and you've got just an absolutely stellar resume that goes from the United Nations Foundation to USAID to the World Bank. Going to want to hear all about how that led you to what you're doing now. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks to both of you for having me.
0: And our other guest today is Noopsta Philip Vang with Fudini, a concept that he created to uh, enable refugees and immigrants to get involved in cooking and meal delivery. And uh, Noopsta, I know that you've also known. Johanna, and this was kind of a perfect pairing. and We've been really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Tell us us where this idea came from. Uh, I know your family is Laotian, right? Um, And was food a big part of your culture growing up?
2: Yeah, for me, uh, so I grew up in, so my family, we're from the Hmong community, which is an ethnic group from northern Laos. Um, And so my parents came here as refugees back in uh, the late 70s when there was a uh, during the time of the Vietnam War there was also uh, uh, I guess you would we call it the secret war which Correct. was happening in Laos as well and so
0: and they fled that
2: so they 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 fled that my um, a lot of my family was working with the the US government uh, the CIA because they were recruiting the Hmong to fight the Communist Lao and so many many Hmong people came to the states. My family ended up in Chicago and I was born in Wisconsin but grew up in Minnesota. So if you go to Minnesota today, it's the largest, you know, concentration among people in the world. So I moved out from Minnesota to D.C. for grad school. I did my MBA at Georgetown. I was just, first off, just kind of missing some of my mom's home cooking, if anybody can kind of relate to that. Yeah, I believe that. We hear Uh, that a lot,
0: actually, from people in your industry.
2: Yeah, and so... We don't miss our mother's cooking, (laughs) do we,
3: Bill? No, we don't. always say. We don't don't
0: want to know about our mother's (laughs) cooking, but keep going.
2: We're always welcome uh, to come over to my mom's if you're ever in Minnesota. I was really first just kind of missing my mom's home cooking, and so I grew up eating, you know, home-style Southeast Asian food my entire life. You know, Hmong food is is somewhat similar but very different in I was going to ask you,
3: what, what does it entail, Hmong food? How does it differ from?
2: So if you look at, like, Lao food and Thai food, it's it's really, right, it's, it's a little bit different in terms of the ingredients they use, um, access to fresh, you know, ingredients vegetables fish meats and things like that Hmong food is more you know a lot of the Hmong people were in the mountains basically so a lot of the cooking styles and techniques were about like creating stews or soups using whatever they could find in in the area and so meat wasn't you know a big part of it mm-hmm. i think it's definitely changed given that you know we're in america now and so Meat is actually a very large, large part of our diet now. So,
3: what about spice? Is it is it hot like some of the Laotian food? Yeah, can so be? We,
2: we take a lot of the spice uh, uh, influence from like Lao and Thai food. Like we do a lot of like homemade pepper sauces, stuff tip, like that. Tip
3: Cow, which I'm sure you've been to, mm-hmm. we had him on our. On our show, oh, Bobby! Yeah, 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 I love and, Bobby, and yeah. I, yeah, we do too. And, and it's a restaurant here, in DC. Yeah, yeah, restaurant in DC called Tip. Am I saying it right? Tip Cow, or mm-hmm. Tip Cow, Tip Cow, Tip yeah. Cow. And boy, is, and there's so there's a regular menu, and then there's the jungle menu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it is hot. Yeah. yeah, it is really hot. So yeah,
2: so we but good. Uh, so so it's kind of a mix of we take influences from from all different pieces, but a lot of it is comes down to just the techniques that we use. Um, we do a lot of grilled meats as well. Yeah, I was just missing Hmong food, and I was thinking maybe I could find auntie or grandma, you know, in D.C. I was in Roslyn at the time, and uh, trying to just see, like, maybe you can knock on a few doors and buy some of their their home This just
3: came, really, you know, what's cool about this, this just, like, came from your heart and missing,
2: you know, missing your mom's food. It very much is very personal to me. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, it was just, like, an idea, like, how do we connect with local chefs, right, these local creators, Um, And I think what was really the turning point was me thinking about my mom and my dad's stories coming here as refugees, right? Like that experience of not speaking the language, not very much education, the cultural aspects of like, I'm going to this place that I have no clue about how to even like live there. And a big part of that is, but they're still able to make their food, right? Like my parents still are able to make their food. And if you're looking across all the different communities of diaspora, right, it's all the same, right? They go to a new place, don't have anything, but, you know, one of the things they, they do still have is their food, right? Their language and their food. For me, like, really just seeing, oh my gosh, like, there's already this huge community of people that already know how to make this type of food better than anybody else, right? We can create a place for people like my mom and my dad to be able to utilize those skills, but then also earn a living wage, earn a good living, right? To support themselves navigating bypassing those employment barriers that normally you know, immigrants mm-hmm. and refugees face right. So, for me, for me, it was kind of a merge of my personal story, kind of what, how I see the world should be, right, and uh, creating a place where food and culture that normally is overseen or overlooked, you know, is not. We're putting a spotlight on that stuff.
0: For Johanna, where, where were you born and raised?
1: I'm a New Yorker.
2: Can you tell? Nice. Okay. Okay. All
0: right, excellent. and and mm-hmm. and so you got interest. And when did the food interest in your career come in? Like, at what stage? Where were you when it? when it happened.
1: Well, I've always been interested in food, but I didn't think it was something you could do right. as a career. I mean, if you grow up in New York, you know about food and I was from a family that cooked and liked to eat and uh, my father, who had a passion, I think he should have been an ethnologist instead of a doctor, always would take us to different neighborhoods. We'd go to festas in the Italian neighborhood. We'd go to the Hispanic Day marches. So I was familiar. So you were
3: exposed. You were. I was exposed, you were exposed to this. It, but, being in New York City like, I mean, helps, right? Right. I mean,
1: Although what's interesting is New York is only now getting some Ethiopian restaurants. They have very few Afghan restaurants. So actually we're ahead of
0: new york here in dc in free ethiopian food yeah
1: (laughs) but what's fascinating And and afghan but what's interesting is in washington we really are a city of immigrants and people from other parts of the world but also from uh other parts of the united states and we have a regional cuisine when i first came to washington i would say this was such a plain vanilla food town i mean the most exotic thing you could get was a crab cake on main avenue but now you can go anywhere. You can get a pupusa. You can get all the Afghan food you want. You can get Bolivian food in the Eden Center, which is well, quite fascinating. Well,
3: so in, you know, in addition to the immigrant population in Washington, we also have that just large professional, diverse, you know, with the World Absolutely. Bank and all of you know the UN and all of that. So, I mean, I feel like when I got here, so I've been here since the late eighties. I'm sorry, the late seventies, mm-hmm. like seventy nine, eighty. And Ethiopian food was so unique in this town. And
1: then it was just everywhere. You're absolutely right, Debbie. And it was exotic, but we have a population that is willing to try things. But the important thing also is that the immigrant population that came here was willing to share it and use it as a tool for social integration. And that's very important. And now, for example, one of the interesting things, the Eden Center, which was this large center that was built by the Vietnamese diaspora and is over 40 years old. It's
3: in Washington. In Wa-
1: it's in Virginia. Okay. Eden Center is in Falls Church, Virginia. at Seven Corners. But what's interesting is the people who own the restaurants now are the second generation, and those children have been so successful that they don't want to cook, and there was an article about who cooks your Vietnamese food, and it's mainly Hondurans. So the new wave of immigrants comes in and replaces the other ones, uh, yet they learn different cuisines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it is fascinating.
0: And then you had the idea that this could be a course at American University?
1: I had a very lucky break. I've had a relationship with American University over my career, and I went to the dean and I said, I really would like to try this. And they were a little skeptical, but they said, okay, we teach. And what year was this? This was five years ago, so 2014, and I went to them and they said, okay, you can try it as a capstone course, which is a course for um, majors in international relations, and you can work on this. So I did. I put together a course, not knowing completely what I was doing, and it became the most popular course in the university. Uh, I was fortunate in that uh, the SALT, the block of National Public Radio, heard about it, started writing about it. I called it Conflict Cuisine, War and Peace Around the Dinner Table. And, it's a and, great
3: name. love that. And
1: that was one of the things that attracted people. And so I was very excited because there's a magazine, I think it's called This Week, and there were three people teaching food courses at that time in the United States. Jose Andres, Guida De Laurentiis, the television chef, and myself. And I beat them out as far as uh, And is popularity. there is there
3: food at the course? Do you bring in? Well,
1: that's the attraction. Yeah. A college student and a food course are a winner. That they, works. They go to the restaurants of these diasporas. The university was very generous, and they subsidized these meals. And I was able to negotiate a fair price with the different vendors, uh, and we had a wonderful time because I wanted the restaurant to tell them what did it mean to leave my country, mm-hmm. what did it mean to my family, how did it, how did it affect the food I make? Is it different from the food we get on the ground? So, the, so
3: most of these immigrants who are, and I, you know, who are cooking and. Um, selling their food. are they Were they chefs in their home countries and they came here, or they started cooking when they came to the States?
1: So it's very interesting. Each one has a story. As you know from your own work in food, the Salvadorian chef that I used had been a law student, and he had been chased out of his country by the military. And he came here, and he said, I'll never speak Shakespearean English. I'm going to learn how to cook. And he became a very successful chef, an entrepreneur, and a teacher of other immigrants. So Those are the kinds of stories I think that resonate. Similarly, the guy I work with who does Ethiopian food had been a hotelier. His family had left after Haile Selassie was pushed out, and he worked in hotels. But he also thought that there was a market for a high-end Ethiopian cuisine, and he followed his path that way. But many of these people start in another field. We know this from what we see now with immigrants around the world who are coming into countries.
3: They also know that they've got... Something special to impart, right? Like their their home food, exactly, is something they can bring
2: Mm -hmm. to their new city.
0: Uh, Noopsta, what was your first step for making Fudini happen?
2: Uh, First step was me trying to cook. When I came to DC, the great thing about being in school again is like I was able to just start working on the idea, right? I could class projects with my classmates. People would be like, okay, you have a PLAS project, you have to come up with a business plan for XYZ or something like that. And, and we'd come to meet as a group and they'd say, okay, who has a business idea? And I'd raise my hand and be like, oh, I have a, I have an idea, right? And so we were able to get all my classmates to help kind of create some marketing plans or things like that and used school as kind of a real nice testing ground mm-hmm. for, for the idea. So I worked on that during the school year, really just developing the concept, doing some Kind of just pitching and things like that. And then uh, in that summer between my first and second year, 2000, summer 2015, um, entered a pitch competition and won uh, through the U.S. Chamber, Pan Asian American Chamber of Commerce. What kind of competition was it? A pitch competition. Okay.
0: So, and they were going to give you some funding as a result of it? Or, yeah,
2: yep. uh, $5,000.
0: Okay, that gets you started.
2: So it was really that first sign of validation and it was. Up until that point, you know, I'd, I'd heard so many like, I don't understand what you're trying to do. I don't get it. Like, are you sure it's going to work? Um, and this was that first moment of validation where I'm like, okay, maybe we might have something. Um, and so that summer, luckily my friend's mom, who's Hmong, she was visiting D.C. for the summer. And so I was like, hey, do you want to try some cooking out and then <laughs> we can try some beta testing try and to Try to sell to it people. to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we, we were just cooking out on my friend's house, and uh, I was dropping off deliveries, getting customer, you know, people's feedback, you know, trying foods that they'd never had before.
3: Um, With these friends? Yeah. Selling it to? Friends of friends. Uh, yeah, You know, anybody. Someone in your, that you knew that right. you could reach. yeah,
2: Anybody who was willing to just help. Uh, we didn't ask people to pay, you know, because like they don't, we're just trying to test it out. And so uh, it was very much just trying to. Figure out if we can do it. And so, yeah. So, say
0: a little bit about how Fudini works today for people who aren't uh, familiar with it. You've got a great t shirt on. It says <laughs> yeah. which I assume is how we find you. Yeah. Uh, so, and it says Enjoy uh, Food, Empower Lives. How, absolutely. How, how do you make both of those things happen?
2: Well, um, I mean, Johanna's or quite a few times. She's uh, been one of our biggest supporters. Um, yeah. And wanna... my
1: class loves it. Yeah. Okay.
2: Well, I, wanna... the... I was going to say there must be an intersection. <laughs> I also want to hear about how you two know each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, foodini.com today is, um, you know, we're, we're we're kind of moving into the next phase of the, the company. So we started out as an online delivery. So you could order, go to foodini.com, order a meal, right, pick and choose different cuisine types, mix and match, have it delivered to you for dinner. Uh, we do traditional catering too, uh, weddings, parties. But more recently, we started a partnership with Whole Foods. Um, so we actually have, I guess you would call like a mini- pop stall or a stall yeah. inside um, Whole Foods stores and so we have one right now in Foggy Bottom in the George Washington uh, University campus and so we're looking at exploring what potential we have in the retail space now that's well. just such a great yeah.
3: way to get the name out it's, yeah. you know ha- that was a great that was a great move yeah. love that
2: say a little bit more about who's doing the cooking yeah, so we have uh, five amazing chefs right now. Uh, chef Majid, who's uh, from Syria, and he's currently located at our Whole Foods location. Uh, chef Mam, who's our very first chef. She's our, our Lao chef. Um, Mina, who's uh, from Iran. Um Yir- Yir- who is from Eritrea. And then we, our newest chef is uh, Talsif from Bangladesh.
0: And so, Joanna, it must have been destin- destiny that you two knew each other and are supporting each other, right? This is right up your alley.
2: Mm-hmm. I was
1: asked by something that you left out in your bio, the Halcyon uh, um, Fellowship. Uh, Halcyon is a, uh, has a program that does food entrepreneurship as part of its broader incubator program for people like Phil who are inventors and creative people. And I was asked by the then current director, I guess, to mentor someone. And guess whom he gave me, Phil. And that was how we met. I guess it was about three or four. Years ago? Three years. Three ago, years? Three years ago. Yeah, in the summer. It was really ago.
3: Phil hot. and Noobster are the same person. Phil, I'm sorry. For yeah. Phil, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's
1: okay. I, I And I guess I remember him telling me about the idea, and I said, oh, this is perfect. And, you know, I'll confess now I had a little bit of doubt about it, but I have become a great believer in what you've been doing because I think you hit the industry at a time when there was a greater consciousness about refugees and the power that food has, not only to employ them, but to educate others. And you've done such an incredible job. I went up to Union Kitchen, which is where you started, I remember, and there were just a few people cooking on these little burners in their little corner. And now you have your own space, which is fantastic. And then I felt for the work that I do in my classroom, it would be very interesting to hear Phil's story about an entrepreneur who does something and really does it well. And the rest is history. And then you've catered for events. We have a project Phil is an advisor on of this uh, life project, which is livelihoods and food entrepreneurship, which works with Syrian and Turkish refugees in Istanbul. Phil is an advisor. He's going out with us there to teach people how to do pitch competitions so it's really been a, a wonderful relationship and i'm so pleased to see that it's happening you're even i think catering the one journey festival which is the big refugee festival in washington now
2: yeah well f- first off i didn't know that when we met that first time i was like oh wow she really she's all in i was like oh i don't she doesn't doubt it at all right and and for me i was like huh. doubting it you know every well, moment right like i was terrified But she was very much somebody who was, at the time, I didn't realize how important it is to surround yourself with people that support you, not just your idea, but just believe in you as a person, right? And so she was one of the very first people who just was just like, I love what you're doing. I love you as a person. Like, I want to support you. And I was, from day one, I was like, this person needs to be around me all the time.
0: So Joanna, when you say that food and kind of the diaspora reflects the state of conflict around the globe. Um, Does it tell us that there is conflict or does it tell us more than that? Like how deep can you take that? What insights are there that we can glean from the food in our community?
1: Well, I think if we had a couple of hours, we'd go through the political science of it. But you're absolutely right, both of you, that the connection between food and conflict is very strong. And in fact, last spring at the Security Council, there was a resolution passed saying we have direct evidence that the conflict that we see, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and in in Southeast Asia, is a direct correlate of two things. Conflict, which we see going on in many countries. There are not many countries in conflict, but those that are are intractable conflicts. And then the other thing we see is that the Non-state actors, these gangs, these Janjaweed, the Al-K, you name the non-state actor, one of the first things they do is they take over the food supply and they use that. What, as do, a, what
3: does that mean, non-state actor?
1: It means that Just, they're not a government. Okay, so, okay. for example, the Taliban are not a government in Afghanistan, but they, in fact, operate as a state in that they launch wars, they do things that are function the functions of a state but not recognized as a state. That's what I'm Mm -hmm. I'm referring to. So there is a direct link. And the other link, which I think we all are concerned about, whether we're at war or not, is the growing impact of climate change on migration. We know, for example, before the Syrian conflict started in 2011, that there were terrible droughts because there was very bad control of the water table. And poor farmers who couldn't afford wells were pushed into urban areas. We know that a lot of the migrants coming today from Central America are also impacted by the terrible uh, dryness that has taken place, again, a result of climate change. They're abandoning their fields not because they want to, but because there's no place to grow their food. It is hot now, and the growing seasons have changed, and we don't recognize that.
0: What do your students take and do with this, do you think? I mean, you've been teaching for five years now. Have you seen some of them use this in terms of their own Uh, career paths?
1: Well, I have have had many students who continue on and work in the food space. I have a young woman who's working in Geneva with the World Food Program. I have another one who's working as a startup. Um, I have people who are writing about food, and then there are some that just use it as a lens from which to understand international relations. But across the board, I'm in touch with many of my students, and they just love the way they've learned about a dimension of international relations that they had never thought about. And as we know, the I think the whole language of food is changing also. We look in Washington, people have apps on their phone to follow food trucks.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, when we started Share Our Strength way back, more than 30 years ago, there were probably you know, two names that people would recognize in the food world, Wolf King Puck and Julia Child, or maybe Jacques Pepin, maybe three names. And over the years, so, you know, chefs have become uh, celebrities, they've got PR agents, they've got book deals, they're on television, they have their own shows. So just that increase of exposure around food and more than food, but what I think part of what you're talking about, what food can do for a community, right? What food can do for family, what food can do for conversation. So all of that has been really, I think we've seen such an increase in that.
1: And I think the chefs that I've seen who go to these conferences are there because they're involved in using food as a tool for social good. Um, I think that's cool. And that's
3: new newish. Very I would new. say. You know, 10 years, right, ago le- maybe.
1: Even less than okay. that. It's a term I, that's been coined called social gastronomy. It's using food to impact social change. You've been doing that forever. You just didn't know you were social mm-hmm. gastronomers. Because that's what Share Our Strength has been doing. You use the tool of food to highlight that's a right. problem. That's but right. what's interesting is chefs have come together. There's something with the sustainable development goals, which we know are going to go through the year 2030 at the and United Nations. Chef's Nation. Manifesto.
3: Yes, and yeah. I've
1: worked with them. In fact, they're in uh, Sweden today at the Eat Forum. And they've brought chefs there to demonstrate to policymakers and advocates that chefs play a role. And people listen to chefs because... How do we experience another culture? We experience it through our palates. We taste food first. If you can't travel and you taste a different food, that's where you learn about something.
3: Just to build on what you're talking about, chefs having a voice, we just had 15 chefs in from all over the United States into Washington who are being trained um, to go up to Capitol Hill and lobby their members of Congress around summer meals, the importance of summer meals. And it was such a powerful couple of days. And I think about the Chef Manifesto as a much bigger opportunity, right? To bring chefs together from around the world and leverage their voice for all the reasons you're saying. Why, yeah, you know, they're listened to because they are, uh, you know, they're business people in the community. They are creative. They're successful, and and people want to hear. And they know about nutrition. They know about sustainability, right? They know about you know uh, calories in. Cal- they know things that. Given a chance now to leverage their voice with policymakers and lawmakers is a really is a really powerful opportunity. And I think
1: since we're all Washington animals, people don't see chefs as political. so that when they talk, right. they're talking about precisely the things you mentioned, good health, nutrition, the way we use food, the prevention of waste, the sustainability. And then there are all these people in the uh, chefs world who are very conscious of how we grow food and the responsible growing of food, the responsible uh, sacrifice of animals. They're not against eating meat, but they want uh, humane practices. So I think there's nothing bad about what they do. And they have picked up through, I think, the leadership of Paul Nunham, who runs this, a great group of chefs from around the world. I've met many of them in meetings with Paul. And uh they're super impressive. There's a group in Peru that he introduced me to called La Revolución, the revolution. These are women who have gotten the government of Peru to publish nutrition books that kids can look at. And these books show, you know, what is this vegetable? What is that vegetable? What do you use it for? In very simple language, and they can take it home to their parents. Impressive work. I think There are a incalculable numbers of refugee food projects. I think what makes yours unique is that you really started as a businessman and have seen the value added and have moved into this space, for example, with a commercial uh, chain like Whole Foods, which is very generous, actually, in their integration of these kinds of projects, especially in their carry-out food areas. But um, I just read about a group in um, New Haven which is working with the Yale Law School. So they're helping not only to promote the cuisine and have the community in New Haven work, but they're also helping with the legal issues that immigrants often face when Mm -hmm. they come to a country. And I was just talking to my colleague in Istanbul this morning, telling me that he had just been to a similar conference at the World Bank in Paris, where they were talking about projects like this. So we know that refugee food as a means of communication and integrating is very popular uh, and is growing, I think, because this is the way you learn that the people who are villainized or vilified or just made into statistics are not in fact that, that they are human beings and it's a very
2: important component.
0: Yeah. Noobster, what's your kind of uh, long-term vision or ambition for Foudini?
2: Yeah, for me, I've always seen Foudini as um, something that can grow and become, you know, across the, the country. I think what's really interesting about how we're approaching um, food and refugees and immigrants is that right. You go to any different city in the U S and it's like a, very completely different type of communities right that are there right you go to la the immigrant and and refugee communities are 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 different from we were just talking about this i'm
3: fascinated by how people end up yeah i knew minnesota was the was the hub for among yeah you know new hampshire has i forget some Mm -hmm. other population washington el salvador and ethiopia right it's so yeah interesting and there's cities that you wouldn't even expect sorry so
1: i'm going to lincoln nebraska Lincoln, Nebraska has one of the largest number of Yazidi immigrants, and that's because, well, first there were Yazidi families there, and then when the- Yazidis
3: border Iraq, is that right? They
1: are a Christian group that lives in the Kurdish area in Iraq, Iraq. and in fact, they were imperiled by ISIS, and many of the people were pulled off, and has a terrible history, but the Department of Health and Human Services, which handles the reintegration of refugees into the United States, identifies cities that have employment opportunities. So in the area, in the Midwest, there are a lot of slaughterhouses, there are a lot of businesses that have moved there, and it's the employment opportunities. But people also have to eat. So restaurants become one of the means by which the community supports these Folks. And we're doing a, a project this summer. They're interviewing all these refugees that have moved and settled in the middle of the country and are very well accepted, mm. integrated into that community.
2: Right. I think when I look at Fudini, it's not just going to like large cities. It's actually looking at bringing this concept to like smaller cities, maybe mm-hmm. where the communities are, you know, kind of, you know, you know, wanting to have more diversity, wanting to have more community right and I think one of the things about what food you can do is like to have you know a Syrian meal you know in a very rural place somewhere is is just a really cool idea of being able to share culture food people you know across Mm -hmm. different um, economic you know Mm -hmm. boundaries cultural boundaries and all those things because um, you know my friend Johnny Dubonnet he runs a Zatar company in DC here he says you can't hate somebody that feeds you mm, so it's like that's so powerful, right because mm-hmm. food is is love, it is nurturing, mm-hmm. it is caring, and like if you f- if somebody gives you food to eat, you kind of just have to respect it, and if it's really good food, you're like you have to really love' it, you know love that person for 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 doing that and or, so, or at um,
3: least it breaks down a barrier yeah like absolutely. if you don't love them, you just yeah you, you don't hate' them anymore so
2: I think somehow when can play a part in kind of spreading that mm. that that energy and and that power through kind of just. All different parts of the country, and I think that's something I think down the road could be could be really awesome.
0: So what has to happen for you to be able to do that?
2: Um, well, part of it is... we need uh, more Joanna. Hanging yeah. out with Joanna. <laughs> yeah, hanging right? out with Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, we're we're working on raising um, around a capital mm-hmm. to help us grow and and um, expand. And so, really, it's 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 kind of a you know a process of developing the business, finding the right partners for us to grow uh, over time, and and then looking at expanding into additional cities um, you know soon rather than later yeah. so um,
0: One of the ideas we've been playing around with and I now have a spin-off of it sister um, is something we call cooking with Congress and the idea was originally my wife Rosemary's idea which is uh, as one way of kind of breaking through this by you know this terrible partisan you know gridlock and paralysis um, see if we can get members of Congress from different parties to learn to cook together mm. to come together and have a chef who really knows what he or she is doing teach them in small groups. But now I'm thinking it would also be great to have members of Congress cook with refugees and immigrants as a way of understanding mm-hmm. be cool. these issues. Yeah. Um, yeah, would. We were yesterday on the Hill with uh, a member who you know, said I'm. Uh, he used to be a chef. Uh, yeah. And he said, uh, what do you want me to do? How do you deploy me? So it'd be really interesting to talk about whether we mm. could bring some members of Congress just so they have that experience of Standing side by side with somebody who has had a different life experience and learn a little bit about the immigrant and the refugee journey over something that bonds you together in ways that you were just describing. Yeah, yeah,
2: that'd be so cool. It's a
1: great community building activity. And I think one of the most interesting parts of this is that, you know, there was a survey done about millennials and what they like to do. And it was done by the Harvard Divinity School. And they had six things that millennials did to have a secular communal experience because they discovered that many people are not joining organized religions. And the first thing on their list was dinners, that the millennial population comes together to have dinners. So this is a perfect idea in reaching out to a generation that needs to be reached out to. I have to tell you the other ones were um, CrossFit, <laughs> and the, yeah. in and uh, soul cycle right but the point is that food is the number one connector in this generation and food courts which have become popular are different today the idea is that food courts have communal tables because this generation which is called generation yum by some writers is actually a generation that spends its day looking at their phone or their screen so when you come to eat you can't eat with your phone in your face. You have to eat with a fork and knife or maybe your hands. But you left out one thing, which I think is just wonderful. In your packages, when you order the food, you get a picture of the chef that prepared it.
0: That's
3: great. And it,
1: and a little bio about who made your food, which I think is absolutely essential.
3: So I was on your site and, you know, you could see the different cuisines that are offered. So what's kind of the the most popular, would you say, in oh, terms of ordering?
2: Um, every, every chef has their big hitters. Mm-hmm. Um so I was kind of just looking at a few of the options. Uh Chef Mam or La Chef, she does these really delicious um tapioca dumplings. And where so, is she from? So what she's uh she does lao food.
3: Yeah, cuz I was just thinking how people are less adventurous, maybe they would pick
2: something like yeah. from I don't know, the Mexican chef, yeah, like a, yeah. you know what I mean? Right. Um so uh Chef Mem, she has these um uh, tapioca dumplings called Saku Saku Yatsai which are If you've never had before, it's it's like a party in your mouth, basically. It's like
0: a party in your mouth
2: because it's like it's a little bit chewy, and then you get to the center, and it just kind of explodes. Um, And it's a really really fun dish. What's that called again? Saku yatsai. Okay. Um, Our Eritrean chef Yubalem she makes this amazing like buttered beef dish called Zigni, and I never had it before before I met her. It was um, unbelievable. Um, Mina does. a couple of really great things she does um her dolme, which are like the stuffed grape leaves mm-hmm. like i i'm not even a really big fan of those and hers are just like off the wall so that's one thing that's yeah. funny cuz it's
3: my joke is when people i'm having a dinner party and people can i what can i bring and i say bring anything but grape leaves cuz i don't i don't know what it is about them i just yeah, don't like them yeah yeah you got to do them right like, you have to do them I gotta right i got to try these
2: yeah you have to do them right it is a really we've done cooking classes with uh with chef Mina like teaching people how to make the dolme and like how she wraps it how she does the consistency like it is it is an there's art there's something song. slippery yeah. about those leaves yeah. that I think I don't Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> there's probably a lot of people who consider them some consider themselves foodies but really don't know or have experience yet the kind of foods that you're talking about so it kind of opens up a whole new world for people Yeah who and love I think food.
2: that's what's great about DC is it's a community of people who are generally curious mm-hmm. right like they're coming from we're coming from all different places we have a lot of world experiences people from all over and you know they want to learn about other things they want to taste different things and i think that's what's really special uh,
0: joanna you've got so much uh international expertise what are where are other countries in relation to us as we think about some of these issues and in their understanding of food as power uh, of uh food telling us things about conflict. Do, do we understand this uniquely or are other countries leading here as well?
1: It's interesting. The Nordic countries, which have a Nordic Food Council, which include the all the Scandinavian countries and Iceland, have been very much committed to using food as a tool for communication. And they have a declaration. I mean, they've gone into the formal areas because those countries received a lot of refugees. They're you know pretty homogeneous populations, but they have become very integrated, uh, not only with the crises going on now, but with the Balkans war. Uh, so the people in Scandinavia are very cognizant of what's going on, and they try to use food not only to support good nutrition and sustainability because they're also great environmentalists, but they also understand the power that Noops is talking about when we Talk about food as a way to integrate people, and I know of projects all over the region. I went last summer to a workshop that was done on ethnic cuisines in an area of uh, Copenhagen called Norborough, and that's the United Nations area of the city. I mean, you have everything from Cuban to Ethiopian to Pakistani to uh, all different African cuisines on one long street. So that kind of uh, integration is happening. I mean, sure there are backlashes, but. I think what's sad to me when I started my conflict cuisine work is that as our policies of reducing the number of refugees comes in and immigrants, I think we're losing. We don't have the same kind of diversity that we once had, or at least the rate of that diversity hasn't occurred because of the more restrictive policies. But I don't think it stops it, and I've always felt my goal when I started was my course is only one course at American University. We need to bring this to other schools, especially, as you were both saying, outside of Washington. But I think most communities today, if you travel around the United States by car, always have a Chinese restaurant, always have a uh, Mexican restaurant. So you can even start small, But that's why I wanted to get back to this term of what we mean by gastro-diplomacy and Mm -hmm. what we mean by using our palates to taste, because that is what's happened. People like food trucks now. You never saw this before. And I think that's the mobility of people on wheels showing you a new cuisine catches on very quickly.
3: And there's very little American food in a food truck, right? They're always from all over the world, most of them.
1: And the other international dimension is countries are using food to promote tourism and to promote their image. So we have the Peruvians who were pioneers in this, doing this in many ways to clean up a tarnished image they had after the internal wars that they had in the 80s. Uh, We have the Mexicans that have a big food diplomacy program. And if you wonder why Thailand uh, has so many restaurants, you see so many Thai restaurants around the world, the government of Thai started a program called Global Thai about 15 years ago, where they gave expats who were living abroad investment money to open up Thai restaurants.
0: So they're being very intentional, you're saying, about uh, promoting the image of the country through food.
1: food. And that has become a major feature of the food industry. So that is what you call nation branding through food. Uh, UNESCO has a intangible cultural heritage category around food. By the way, the United States has not signed that treaty, but in fact, in ta- food is an intangible cultural heritage.
3: And the State Department had the diplomatic corps here. They had the with all the American people. chefs going overseas for the, the same and, purpose,
1: and they actually are reviving that. I got a note. I was really excited through a contract, but they're handling it through the Arts and Embassy program, but. When Secretary Clinton started that program during the Obama administration, that became a powerful diplomatic tool for the United States because everybody likes a chef and everybody likes food.
0: Noopst, your chefs are they? Um, what's their level of training? Are they self-taught? Are they classically trained? Is it a mix?
1: Uh, yeah. How do you find them?
2: I think for us, it's really we start off with we want to feature. Chefs and and who they are and their style. So really, it's like, what are their recipes individually? What is their style of cooking? And then we start there and we say, all right, so we have this amazing home recipe. How do we help them scale it? Right. Instead of feeding 10 people, how do you feed 100 people? So that's where we come in in terms of supporting them in terms of food cleanliness, high volume production. You know, how do you think about a prep list? How do you think about, you know, organizing yourself and planning for large production? Um, and so it's a, it's a partnership in terms of really working together and saying, what dishes do you like to make? What do you normally eat for, you know, dinner? What do you make for your family during a party or a special event? And then we work with them on like, just how do you scale that? How do you build that out so that we can feed, you know, more than a hundred people? How do we do it for a thousand?
0: And how does that impact their lives economically, socially? I mean, have you seen the, you're, you're kind of changing lives at, both ends of the the pipeline it feels like to me right yeah Yeah, i mean the chefs are involved and all of a sudden they're getting this knowledge about how to scale that they didn't have before and then of course customers are experiencing this food yeah but um give us a sense of how it's impacted some of their lives
2: yeah i think um in the same way that it like johanna was talking about how it builds you know country brands or just builds inclusivity like that does it for us too internally at our company Mm -hmm. right like We're using food to actually build community within our own company. And I think that's what a lot of our chefs, either if they are home chefs or if some of our chefs are professionally trained, it's that when you come to this new place and you don't know anybody, you don't have any family or friends here, right? Yes, you can get a job and earn a living and support your family. But at the end of the day, no matter who you are, you search for community, you want to become a part of something. You want to be a part of a community. And I think that's been the biggest impact is when, pe- when our chefs and our team members come to work, it is almost family-like. You know, it is it is a community. And so I think that's kind of been the biggest uh, impact that I've seen. And I didn't even recognize that at the beginning. I didn't mm-hmm. even think about how, how impactful it could be, right, mm-hmm. to have a place where, you know, some of our chefs before were, like, doing jobs like house cleaning. You know, they were – packaging food for airlines, things like that, where the community piece was missing.
3: And Do I they think, work together, these mm-hmm,
2: chefs? So, yeah. so are
3: you, are, you, are they in a central kitchen? Yeah, so we have a central kitchen
2: okay. where all the chefs come prepare the food. Um, and, you know, any given day you're hearing five, six different languages, right? <laughs> you're, you're having uh, communication and working together across different lo- languages and cultures. And I think that's, that's really the beauty is that they feel comfortable enough to be who they are. In a space that's hopefully safe for them, and um, is there an opportunity
3: yeah. to to for a, a, a consumer, a diner, to come and have a meal at your place, or is so, it all?
2: So right now, our, our only main retail pl- space is uh, at Whole Foods. Okay. Um, but what we are doing this summer is we're doing we're, we're hosting cooking classes at our kitchen. So yeah.
0: And when you bring somebody on, what uh, quality uh, do you look for? What's the kind of the decisive quality? I'm assuming they've got to have you know, the passion and the skill and things like that. But what do you, when you make that decision, that final decision, what's it based on?
2: Yeah. I think it really just comes down to, um, right. If, if you taste food and it's good and you're like, Oh wow, that was really amazing. Like I go off my, my palate, like number one, right. Um, that's kind of been the guiding factor for me from the beginning, because I am not a chef by trade. Like I don't have a food background. So really it's been, well, how does my palate feel? But then also, we look at the individual and say, you know, is this something that they, they see as something that's important to them? Do they feel like this is a job and a career path that they want to go down? Because we, we're, we're not seeing this opportunity for our chefs as an end point, right? It's not just a job, right? For us, it's it's a starting point. It's how how much do you want to grow? How much do you want to develop? Because down the road, maybe you could be teaching the next group of chefs that come in, right? Maybe you could be leading them. Maybe someday you want to open up your own restaurant somewhere. And so it's really for for them understanding and and seeing for them this is a career for them. This is an opportunity for them, not just right now, but for the future. So
0: So exciting. I feel like we're just seeing the very beginning of Foodini. I I can't (laughs) wait to see where it goes next. And I think both of you have helped people think about food. And Debbie and I have done, we've done 130 episodes now of Uh, add passion and stir, but uh, you've helped us and certainly me think about food in ways that I just haven't before. I mean, this is just such an enriching notion that um, more people have to learn about it. And I hope some of them will through add passion and stir, but I hope some of them will through other means as well and would love to be helpful. Noobsta and thinking about whether there's some ways that we can help support your growth. It's I was just, just about really to offer the exciting. same thing. I just, We've got contacts, obviously, all over the country in you terms know, of the Share Our Strength Network.
3: Both in terms of, obviously, you know chef relationships, but also business relationships. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as I was thinking about you talking about scaling it, I was thinking exactly the same thing. So... We'll have to stay yeah, talking and, and eating uh, together.
0: Yeah, Mostly my sister wants want to help you be lights. a taster. <laughs> I think she wants to be a taster. <laughs> I, I think that's what this is really <laughs> all about. I thank you both so much for being with us. This has great. been a, just thank a you. terrific a conversation. Great. Thank you guys. Uh, and Joanna Mendelson forman people can learn more about your work uh, at American University by am. looking at the course there. Do you and have a I website? And
1: have a website, conflictcuisine.com.
0: Conflictcuisine.com. Um, and Perfect.
1: Uh, I'm happy to share my materials i was recently talking to educators recently at the national foreign uh, educators conference here in washington and i've gotten lots of response and that's because i think there's a desire around the country uh to look at food as something that helps integrate students just the way when refugees come when a foreign student comes to this country they want to find a cuisine that's familiar and home-like so there's a great market there also
0: fantastic uh, nukes to Philip Fang. Um, your website is on your t shirt, yeah. Foudini. That's where to Com. find you, that's where to learn more. Yep,
2: F O O D H I N I.
0: Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you both for being with us, Debbie Shore. Thanks as always. Yeah, great conversation. Um, and from the whole team at Share Our Strength, Kelly Griffin, and from our uh, producers here at District Productive, um, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I hope you'll. Uh, enjoy this episode that you can go to our website and look at other episodes. You can rate them and rank them, subscribe, let your friends know about it and enjoy uh, our conversations about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. Thank you so much. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.